recording this for a podcast that I do with Rylan Grant called The Writer's Block. Uh, I, am, I am required to say an award-winning podcast. And of the two awards we won, I actually had heard of one of them. So uh, that's, you know, I had heard of the telly. Um, it's funny, the previous panel was about podcasting. It was very interesting as to how 800 podcasts got started during the pandemic. 800,000 podcasts. No way. Got started during the pandemic. So uh, 799, 998 of those were not started by me. Uh, so that's good. So uh, first I'd like people to introduce themselves. Uh, Scott, just tell us a little bit about yourself aside from trees in New Jersey. Yes, so hi, I'm Scott Polish. Uh, I draw comic books uh, for the last 30 years. Um, uh, I have to keep telling myself that. And then uh, I've done like a six year run on Deadpool. I've done pretty much every Marvel character there is. Uh, done some DC work too. I have my own independent comic now called, uh, the first issue was The Secret History of the War on Weed. The second issue, issue was Halloween Party. And the third issue that comes out at the end of this year is called Holiday Party, so. Excellent, and uh, Charlie? Charlie Stickney, writer of titles like White Ash, Glarian, The Adept, The Game. Uh, I was former co-publisher over at Scout Comics, and uh, now I'm running my own imprint called White Ash Comics, where I'm banding all of the things that I do underneath it. And uh, I also do a lot on Kickstarter, uh, which for me is a great place, I think, if you're a new talent to sort of break in and find, you know, at least a door that you can go for. We will definitely get back to that. And Liana? I'm Liana Kangas. I'm a comic artist. Uh, I also write occasionally, but I've worked on uh, some licenses like Star Wars, Star Trek, a uh, huge horror person, but I also have a couple creator-owned series, one with IDW called True Cult. It's like a supernatural thriller fast food crime book. And then I have a new book with Bloom Studios coming out next week called New York Station. It's a Kill billionaires in space book. So, you know, very, yeah, yeah. It's so good. Make sure you all add it to your pull list. The idea is time has come for people in the last month. Uh, I'm David Avaloni. I'm the co host of the Writer's Block podcast, the previously mentioned award winning. Uh, that's it. I never have to mention that again. Um, I'm also a comics writer. I was in film for many years. I'm still sort of in film. I'm writing for a TV show called At Wheels which is basically Cars, but it's the Batmobile. It's for preschoolers, so I'm writing a Batman show in which no one can punch anyone. <laughs> that is a fascinating job. And I started in comics in 2014, which is one of the reasons I'm obsessed with this topic. I was 49 years old when I wrote my first comic book script. I know I look fantastic for my age, and because uh, that was eight years ago. And um, I write a lot of comics for Dynamite, including the Elvira Mistress of the Dark comics, the Page comics for a while. I wrote a bunch of pulp characters when they used to have them in the shadow of Doc Savage, Zorro, and uh, I co-created a comic called uh, Drawing Blood with uh, Kevin Eastman, the creator of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, so that's my quick resume. I, I first off wanted to get to the title of this uh, the title of this panel, which was chosen very specifically so that I could say this, there is no front door. Uh, there never was a front door, there will never be a front door. Any work in the professional arts, anyone whose career you see in the professional arts, which is what I'll, which is, which is the very fancy collegiate way of saying show business, um, 
all of those careers that you've ever seen are handcrafted artisanal careers. There's no, there's no, here's the door, you walk in it, you give them your resume, they say, Here, here's the rich and famous con contract, like in the Muppet movie. Not a thing that really happens. And we all take these circuitous routes to doing what we, to having what we will, uh, we will call dream jobs. I, I try my best never to complain about my work in public because I know that there are people reading Twitter or whatever going, but you have my dream job. How dare you be even remotely unsatisfied with how that goes for you? And I'm like, have a conversation with my landlord about that. Um, but I want to start with Liana. What was your route into the professional arts? What was wow. the, how, did, how did you do your first thing? Um, still a very convoluted backstory, but uh, essentially like my grandfather was a professional artist and so I always wanted to pursue arts in a way, but with the lack of um, finances, so like the struggles of like having an inherent um, privilege to go to school for that was very difficult for me. So I actually went to an engineering college where I was able to do work for higher scholarship. And um, during that, held down three jobs. And uh, between doing regular- Everyone's theater, very excited that you held down I know, <laughs> I, I did it very successfully without getting fired and that's a huge, oh, I think, thing to remember when I tell you about <laughs> freelancing in comics. Um, so, long story short, I actually had to move out of the country, um, and uh, I couldn't take my day job with me, and I, in the back interim, was doing painting and, and doing some things, so when I moved out of the country to Canada, I started doing editorial illustration and trying to pitch for jobs to just do illustration for online, things like that, and um, I have always either worked for staff at a comic shop or helped out at conventions for my local comic shop. Um, and so I kind of already knew how to, I had retail jobs prior, so all this backstory is to say that when I finally didn't have a day job anymore, I started working at a comic shop and running it as uh, management briefly for a little while, all while figuring out what I wanted to do for my art career. And um, I had a lot of wonderful folks along the way kind of suggest things, you know, uh, whether it be like raise my skill sets or whatever, but I think working comics retail allowed me to network with a lot of artists that I adored so I could ask them questions in a lens of not necessarily both being a fan but also as a retailer. And so um, when I finally uh, moved out of Canada, I started pursuing uh, comics and trying to reach out online and did anthologies to kind of build up my portfolio. And um, I guess that's kind of here we are today, years later. Uh, I actually started, I say I officially started in 2017 when I left my comics retail job because that allowed me to have time to search online for people who needed like shorts or anything like that. And I think my first short was for Pat Shand for Destiny in New York, but it was for the Mind Planned Parenthood anthology that won an Eisner and that, um, you know, had a vast array of folks in that book. And so I got really lucky and I did some signs for that book specifically, which is how I met my entire comics community and editors and people that I ended up working with. Wow. So, that's awesome. so that's, I'm probably gonna do this as everyone tells their story because Liana has hit my one of my favorite points about this about comics specifically 
comics is a community. And if you want to be successful in it, even to the degree of simply having work in it and having a comfortable experience being a part of it, you have to give back to that community. I sometimes joke, you know, ask not what comics can do for you, ask what you can do for comics. There are people for whom being involved in comics will only will only ever be like, I want to draw Batman for DC, and that's what I want, and I want nothing else. That's going to be very difficult for you to do, and there's so much more to comics than that. And if you approach the community with an open heart and you work in a comic book store, uh, a lot of famous creators, you know, I think Wade and Music worked as, you know, office people for Marvel and DC back in the day. But when I entered it in 2014, one of the first things I learned is go to conventions, go to signings, go to, when I travel now, I look for the closest comic book shop to whatever hotel I'm in and I walk in and I look at their stock and if they have anything of mine, I say, nice to meet you. And David Avalone, you want me to sign your, you know, the, the dozen Elvira's he's still got in the shop and they're always very happy for that. Uh, it's, a, it's an industry of many parts and a lot of people forget the retailer part some people forget the conventions part. Some people forget the being an online persona part. I think I discovered you, even though we had a zillion friends. On Twitter, there's a hashtag called Visible Women, where people post their artwork. And I'm pretty sure going through the, visual, the Visible Women hashtag, I went, wow, this is some extraordinary work. Who's this? Click Leona Kang is great. Yeah. You know, write down that name. The next time you need an artist, remember to look her up. So there are a lot of ways to interact with comics as a, as a community. And again, simply coming to panels is a part of interacting with the community and showing that you give a shit about how the comics are made and who the people are who make them. Can I take Sorry. you back? Oh, no, right ahead. I yeah. just want to say, like, to piggyback on the retailer thing, one of the things I also do that, and, uh, what a lot of folks don't realize is like retailers actually specifically go through a catalog and are actively supporting these creators and books because they choose to order it. Yeah. So it's like nice to go and be like, thank you so much for supporting me and allowing me to keep doing this, right? So it's like a very like self-sustaining like, landscape of like, we all have to support each other no matter like, not just artists, not just writers, not just your colors or flatters or letters or publisher or editor or whatever. It's also the retailers and the folks that work at the, you know, um, at Diamond or fulfillment centers yeah. and things like that, so. Yeah, the, those people, retailers essentially are, they are the salespeople for your work. You are not there, the company is not there, company may not be good, they may or they may not be good at promotion, they may not buy you a full page ad in the previous catalog that the comic book store owner sees, but if they're going through that catalog and go, oh, this guy uh, came through the town the other week and signed all my comics for me, I mean, yeah, let's order five of those. Yeah. Your career can rise and fall on how many, especially if you're not famous, especially if you're not Neil Gaiman, who everyone is ordering 3,000 copies of everything he writes. Uh, if you don't have that privilege, you you know you go out and shake babies and kiss hands. Like you, you do have to, you do have to be a, a presence. Uh, and it's tricky because this is a business of introverts. This is a business of people who work alone, usually in a home office, 
have no natural office culture to support, you know, nobody nobody leans on the office door and say, have you got those TPS reports? But by the same token, nobody leans on the office door and says, heck of a job, man, heck of a job. Cut that and leave it. Come on up and join me, Chuck. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, so retailers, getting to know them, interacting with them, that is really one of the best ways you can get your comics out there. Now I will throw to Charlie. So, so I, I think, you know, like for me when I was in high school, I was 100% sure I was gonna be a comic book writer. I was gonna move to, to New York, I was gonna be an anchor. Like there, there was no doubt this was my career. And uh, I went to college and uh, I was able to like, pitch my own major. And I was like, hey, you know, I'm thinking about doing something with narrative storytelling through the use of art. And they're like, so you want to major in comic books? And I was like, maybe. And they said, uh, well, yeah, but you need to have this quantitative requirement. And they started putting all these different requirements down. And I was like, so what else do you have? And they're like, well, we have film. And so I ended up being a dual major in film and studio art. But I was still sure I was going to be a comic book you know, writer. I was going to move to New York right after college. Um, I interned at Marvel in the summer of 94. So I was like, okay, this, this is my thing. But I also was, was making films, and I was having a great time doing that. And when I graduated, I got a job offer out in Los Angeles uh, to work with a film company. So I ended up moving into film for, for a long time, working in animation and film, and, um, but still missing comics. And the, the film industry has changed a lot. When I came in, I really wanted to be a person who wrote romantic comedies, and that kind of just went away. Um, and it was roughly around like 2016, I was reaching a point where I, I said, you know, I'm getting very frustrated putting scripts out and getting things optioned, getting things set up, but nothing ever gets made. And I wanted to go back to, for me, personally making things. And um, I thought, well, I have this great story that might work better as a comic book. Mm -hmm. And so I said, you know what, let me see if I can find an artist. We'll, we'll do something with it. Maybe I'll pitch it to a publisher. And because I had worked in uh, animation, I knew lots of storyboard artists. A friend of mine was an art director on a bunch of shows. And so he's like, I'll help you find the best artists. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you know, I started putting a pitch together. But then I was, and this is the important thing I'm trying to get to through this long story. I looked at the economics of comics, and the economics of comics is very difficult for a new person breaking in if you want to be a writer, if you want to sort of create your own series, if you want to get picked up by a publisher. And one of the things that they advise you is do short mini-series so you can get picked up because that's what publishers want because they don't want big financial commitment. And as someone who had been writing professionally for 20 years at that point, I, I thought, you know, I actually want to do something that's a little bit bigger, so let me see what my options are. And, you know, even looking at a place like Image, which puts out great books, I realized Charlie Stickney with no name in comics, even if he had a great book, is going to drop an Image number one, and by Image number two, I'm not going to be making any money. And so I thought, well, what else has happened? And that's what led me to Kickstarter. And so I dropped the first issue of White Ash on Kickstarter, which made a nice, you know, it did okay. You know, we had about 300 backers and, you know, raised about $12,000. But from there... That's actually... That's great, by the way. I would say, that, you know, especially... You didn't have a presence in comics. No, none. Did your artist have a presence no, in comics? No, so, so Connor Hughes, who's an amazing, yeah. amazing artist, yeah. 
whom no one knew of at the time. He went to the School of Visual Design. This was the guy I found using my, my friend who was art director. He, um, he had won the first Mark Millar talent search, wow. um, but they paired him with a colorist who didn't work and just nothing happened for him. And he found me on Reddit. I'm like, this guy's incredible. And so we started talking. And he's just, I mean, like, you, you guys know, storytelling is everything. Yeah. Posing is everything. And he understood those things. And so as a writer, that's all you can ask for. So I we, I, but I just I just wanted to establish there that like this was like what did you say twelve thousand dollars yeah three hundred backers yeah with no pre-existing IP and no superstar member of the team that everyone was listening. so that's incredible so how, did, how did people find it like they like the art they, they like they, the, they like the art I mean again like I have a background this is this is what you know when I'm talking about the business. It's also about taking your life experience. I, I had a background also in promotion, doing other things. I had cut trailers for movies. I had worked um, cutting, you know, cutting feature spots for Hulu at one point. You know, like we have all these different hats that we wear when we work in things. And so we were off and running. And from there, we started building a very large Kickstarter presence to the point now, like like the last White Ash spinoff had about eighteen hundred backers. Whoa! And um, we we That's raised crazy. anywhere from like. Fifty-five to seventy-five thousand dollars for every single issue we put out on Kickstarter, That's great. which which is great, yeah. yeah. And so I was doing that, which then led companies like this one company, Scout Comics, came to me because they saw what I was doing. They're like, hey, we would love to publish your book. And so I, you know, they started publishing my book, and then we had conversations. And at some point, they said, well, you seem to know a lot about what you're doing. So would you mind coming on board and being co-publisher of the company? So like that was my very strange path. And then, so then I was co-publisher of Scout for about two years, but now I'm at a point where I kind of wanted to just do my own thing. And so now we've spun off White Ash Comics into its own imprint where I'm doing that universe and some other books. And we do a Kickstarter first and then we'll eventually bring it to the direct market. But um, it's a very financially viable model for me and I can pay the artists that I work with well and everyone gets a piece of the IP and I can make sure creators are treated well. So like, that's, that's, that's what I do. And it's not the traditional comic path, but I get to work with incredible people. Liana has done some work for me. Um, and I, I had Jay Lee do a cover for, yeah. for one of the books. Like we, we've had a lot of great things that we've been able to do, but it was through the Kickstarter path into a publisher and now back to Kickstarter because that's working best for you. It's a different path. Yeah, I think with Kickstarter, especially, you're just finding your audience first, as opposed to going through the retailer and finding the audience through the retailer. Yeah, there's lots um, of hurdles. Yeah, there's lots of hurdles, and but with with Kickstarter, you just you found the people that want that yeah. want you yeah. first. You know, yeah, we have a very strong fan base there that's great. that loves our. Books. Yeah, and, and Kickstarter, a lot of people think it's about raising money, but it is as much a fan base building exercise mm -hmm. and a public outreach exercise. I want to jump down to Chuck and get, Chuck, tell us a little bit about yourself and then that can lead right into oh, uh, what, what got you through the first door. <laughs> that came up on the mic, didn't it? Oh God, it's a hot mic. Um, tell you a little bit about yourself. Oh, let's see, I have my, um, I've been in the business for quite a long time, um, well over 30 years. Um, I was just clocking that today. Someone was asking me about where I started. I started comics um, and then um, did some time there. And <laughs> then I parlayed into <laughs> everything about my, my career has been metaphors. And on a show that I just finished, 
I was explaining it to the producer that each show I've done, I equate it to war theaters. And uh, I did Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, Gulf War. Um, each show has its own unique thing. And then I realized, yeah, I came out of the Civil War, damn. <laughs> that should, doesn't sound good. This should be the only one. So, um, but to be honest, uh, yeah, I started comics in the 80s. Um, I came up through a program um, that was relatively unknown and very new in DC called the New Talent Showcase. Unfortunately, I was never allowed to participate because I was kicked out of it to take over a book that, um, honestly, I got my first shot because the artist died on the book. Oh, and I thought um, I was being escorted to, I thought I was being escorted out of the building <laughs> and I was being brought into the deeper levels of DC. And if you've ever been to the old DC offices, they had their executive spot where yeah. you're going through and I'm like, you know, this doesn't like the back door. <laughs> and um, and, I, and uh, the guy who was bringing me was a man named Dick Jordan. And if you know your comic history, he was one of the greatest anchors in the business, as well as the probably the most known um, senior editor, producer in comics, as well as head of DC Comics at, at one time or another. And um, Dick had made it his crusade to bring in new talent, so he started a new talent program. It started with 40 of us. By the first week, we were down to 35. The next week, we were down to 20. And some people couldn't hack it. Some people actually got work elsewhere. Um, some got work at DC. Primarily, what he wanted was to train these people from the bottom. And we came in once a week. We did two hours with him on his own time after work hours. So we usually came in around 5 o'clock, got out around 7. And he would just take us through the how to be a comic artist, what you had to look for, what editors were looking for, how to break down a page, how to break down a script. It was boot camp, and we weren't being paid. We weren't even interns. We were just kids who really wanted this job, or older people. Like older, when I think we had a couple guys who were 30. <laughs> you know? I mean, I was 26 and thought I was over the hill, to be honest with you. What was the book that you got switched to? Well, um, when he brought me in the office, last well, one he opens his door, and in the office is George Perez, wow. Marv Wolfman, and Eileen. And Perez and, and George were, um, George and Marv were looking at a page of Titans, which was the book at the time. And I had nothing to say. I knew who these guys were because I followed with little fan. We didn't have an internet then, you guys. So I only saw it in magazines like The Amazing World of DC or something. You see a picture of Marv or something. And they thanked me, said they saw my work, thought I was great. I was shocked because Dick used to beat the hell out of me and said, I thought I was the worst guy in the class. And here was Len going, so, Dick said you're the fastest guy. The fastest guy. Because <laughs> I was turning out, well, he'd give us a page and then we had to come back next week with that page drawn. And then he would tear it apart. I got torn apart a lot. And um, so I had no illusions of me. I just knew this was my, this is what I wanted to do. This is my calling. I'd given up a lot to get there. And I won't even go into that because it would take forever. But at one, I was at that time living literally on someone's living room floor to take this class. And was working during the day making frames in a frame shop, cutting mats, which I hated. But it got me money, it got me in New York. And here they are saying, you know, here's Lynn going, um, so um, what do you think of Gene Day's work? If you know who Gene Day was, he was a very prolific Canadian artist who was working on everything from 
master of kung fu to Batman, and he was doing Brave and the Bold. And I was like, oh, he's a great guy. He goes, oh, tell me what you really think. And this was how Len used to do that. He'll get you, you know, all comfortable, and then he'll hit you. <laughs> and so, so I was like, well, Gene's kind of repetitive. He uses a lot of photo reference, stops drawing, just kind of sketches. He's like, I'm glad you saw that because, um, yeah, that's him, all right. And he just died today. And I was like, oh my God, I'm done, screwed up. <laughs> and he goes, and he left us with a book that's half done. And God bless him and all that, but the book's got to go on. So Dick said, you got to take it over. Can you do it? And I had two weeks to do it. And you got to realize, I, up to that point, which was getting pages a week, now I got 22 pages. 22? Yeah, 22 pages. It was a long time ago. <laughs> so 22 pages to draw. Actually, they gave me an extra week, so I had three weeks to draw it. I'm working this job. I had no idea I was being paid. So I would work my eight-hour job of getting paper cuts and glass cuts and wood cuts and come home at night and draw with blood on the paper. When I tell my artists this, I'm not lying, I have paper cuts all the time. You get used to that when you're working as a framer. And they put, as, as Lynn was the head editor of everything, he put another editor on me to keep me going to get the book done. And the guy he picked was probably the toughest son of a bitch in comics, Ernie Cologne. Oh, sure. If you know Ernie, why Ernie was tough? Because Ernie made his bones drawing Richie Rich and hated it. <laughs> and now he's at DC drawing the characters that people told him he could never draw. Ernie was the exact story of a guy who had walked up from the bottom to the top and was always constantly proving himself. And so he was always on you about, don't let them ever put you in a box. So he calls me up with this job because I left him a number to find me. Where's your pages, kid? They want me to bring pages in. No, I'm not there yet. Well, what do you mean not there? You got a week. You should have at least 10 pages drawn. I, 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 I'm at my job. What job are you at? I'm at the wood job. He goes, quit the damn job. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I got up the phone, went to my boss. I got to quit. They were very formal. You need to send a, a resignation letter. So I saw an envelope, took an envelope, took the Sharpie, wrote, I quit, ran out, went home, stayed up 72 hours, drew the book in two weeks. Wow. Got at that time a thousand dollars, most money I've ever seen. Wow. Yeah, and Lynn said, I want to hand you Justice League. Wow. So, generally, Raven of Bow 218 was my first comic book, and I was slotted to be the first newcomer to take over Justice League since Perez. Wow. Um, Perez had moved off the book, Don Heck was drawing the book. Don wanted off the book. <laughs> Don used to tell me, I'm drawing 11 characters every damn week. I hate it. <laughs> so, so I got that. And as a kid who grew up on GC and grew up on Justice League, it was a dream come true. But now I'm in charge of drawing every character, at least the major characters in the DC you know, universe. universe. And after drawing Batman and Karate Kid, that was the beat, that was the dream of the road book. From there, it was constantly, I was constantly kept busy. Um, I was fast. Uh, at that time, I did do almost two books a month, not realizing it. I kept doing the books that were late because also I was going through, which is probably tough on a young artist. There was no regular team on JLA anymore. The writer had, well, Jerry Conway wanted off. Um, there wasn't even a regular anchor. I mean, Romeo Tango actually inked my first story. But he was being—he was getting just inundated with Titans. Titans was a huge hit, so they wanted to keep that train going. 
So they throw me on books. Not only uh, I went from Flash, I did a short backstory on the Creeper, who was a favorite character, terrible story. <laughs> um, Green Arrow, Green Lantern. I love Green Lantern. Love Green Arrow. Terrible stories. <laughs> but but those, they taught me. For those who don't know, by the way, uh, if you're not Chuck Batten or Jack Kirby, one book a month is about what an artist can handle. Uh, a, a, the, the, the rough math, and you guys can easily correct me, but generally you expect an artist to take a day on yeah. a page. Like so in 30 well, days, and, to yeah, and, <laughs> and, you know, and some people are faster and some people are a lot slower. Yeah. And there used to be a more uh, specific division of labor between penciler and inker. Mm -hmm. That has kind of collapsed uh, for a lot of reasons. Mm -hmm. um, but back in the day, that would, you know, again, unless you're Jack Kirby, you're... And, and, and even then, Jack could do it. I was doing it without any idea that I was killing myself. Right, um, right. You know, after I had that stint with Ernie, I got this thing that he, again, was tearing myself apart. And then I go to Dick and say, can I go back to Newtown? He goes, no, you're busy. You got an assignment. Right. You got money coming back. Well, and that's, the, that's another thing. And I think, so, you know, again, I'm going to interrupt to do object lessons. One of the object lessons there is you were getting a lot of notes and you thought it was because you sucked. And yeah. it was because, no, you were the guy they were going to pull out and put on real books. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, other people, everyone else in class, they didn't care that much because that person wasn't going to be drawing the Flash tomorrow. Yeah, well, I mean, again, the other guys that went on to Marvel, I went up to Marvel and got and could not get a, even an interview. They, we had to go up and sit in the lobby at the green door, I think, or red door or something. And all the freelancers knew what that meant. You know, it's like you weren't good enough to go in the back rooms unless you are working there. And I had someone, a, a PA, come out saying, we have to learn to draw refrigerators and Draw cars. I did a Conan tryout, and I'm thinking, you know, that may be bad as something drawing Conan. There was no refrigerators, there were no cars. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is a dark alley if with you're, the grass. If you're drawing refrigerators in yeah. Conan, you have made so I started hearing the hypocrisy right away, but it was hilarious because my friend who was with me was like, you know, he's drawing Justice League, right? <laughs> but anyway, that's what I'm, what I told you this is that there's a myriad of ways. The thing that helped me was not only because I made I made connections, and once I made a connection, um, once I got in there, and your name and your work gets seen, even good or bad, um, even if I I mean to this day I really can't be uh, that objective other than that I did my assignment. But I would talk. I just ran to one of my old editors today, and she was going on about how I was you know this consummate professional, and I was like, well, I had no choice. I had to eat more than just eat, it was a business. And it was something I wanted to do, but the learning curve was tough. Yeah. Um, Dick brought me into the business, but could not spend the time I wanted to nurture me. I didn't yeah. have that. So I went up to see Neil Adams, because that's what you did when you wanted to go see, you know, you need a prophet to talk to, or God, you go see Neil. And Neil had eight people ahead of me, and I was outside his office as he was eviscerating each, every one of them, just how bad they were, because that's what you did. And I got up to him, this probably took an hour, an hour and a half, and he looks at my stuff and goes, what are you seeing me for? And I'm like, well, that's I nice. want you to tell me, and no other words, I suck. And he went on about, well, is Dick paying you? He goes, yeah, he's <laughs> paying me. He goes, well, you know, we need this union, we gotta get this union, you guys gotta get paid. And um, um, you got a book, right? He goes, yeah. He goes, it's a good book. Yes, Jess is a guy that book, yeah. And he goes, um, 
So I said to you, would you work for me? Would you work for me? Well, first he was giving this thing about being your own man. And then he says, Muhammad, you know, yeah, be my own man. What does that mean? And that's because, you know, Dick's putting you up there, but you gotta be your own man. So if I offered you a job, would you take it? Is that a joke? He goes, no, would you take the job? So I had to sit and listen to Neil Adams, the God of Comets, my God, tell me, you know, hey, I want you to work with me. And then he's giving me a speech about being your own man. And I get that crossroads that one runs into when you're in this business where you go left, you go right, you take the blue pill, you take the red pill. And I said, I'm gonna repeat what he said because it's felt right. I'm gonna be my own man and stick with Dick on this, being with Good Choice. And um, I came up and was like, he didn't fire you? Because no, he offered me a job. I jumped to 37 years later, I ran into Neil at the convention. I said to him, you know, I owe my life to you. And he looks at me and goes, I didn't hurt your feelings, did I? <laughs> did I crush you? He goes, no, you didn't crush me. You know, I got an Emmy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, did you doing good? Because I did all right. Yeah, Neil, rest in peace, did hurt a lot of feelings. Neil did that. He was a legend. The thing is, those connections mean something. Neil couldn't remember my name, but he knew who I was because he remembered that I said, to be my own man. And he said, you know, I really was gonna hire you. And I know, but it was important I find out my own lessons. And that was one of the bigger lessons to being a freelancer, to being an artist in general, I had to learn. And those connections of meeting the people that you go along the way that can help you along. Um, and when I got in animation, the lessons I learned in comics made me, I believe, a better artist, a better art director, a better director, even a producer storyteller. Um, to this day, I don't call myself an animator, I'm a storyteller. And um, how I got animation is a lot less than that, other than that, I got tired of comics. Comics does not pay well, you were alluding to that. Uh, everybody up here has said that, and I'm sure we, I'm not gonna tell you our story, but the truth is, it pays pitifully. And the truth, what Jack says, is, is true, is comics will break your heart if you allow it. Um, a, lot a, key do, a lot of people drop the end of that, just like they get with great sure. power must come great responsibility. Right. It doesn't come automatically. No, it doesn't. You actually have to learn that You have to learn. But yeah, comics will break your heart if you let it. Yeah. Uh, and, and a big part of that, I think when people are struggling and trying to enter the industry, it's, very, it's, it's a very common complaint about show business. Oh, it's all your friends, it's all who you know. All of you want to work with your friends too. Everybody in the world, given the choice, wants to work with people they like. So here's the thing, be likable. Well actually, that, be a good works, that does work, but the dangerous part about working with your friends is that you can be associated with people who are who may not have your best interests at heart. That is definitely true. And I have had the danger of hiring friends and then watching a production get in danger because of that friend. Mm -hmm. And so you have to be, again, the key word that I learned and thought of when, whenever I go through that's what I learned with Neil, is to be a businessman, to see what is what does the job require? Sure, it's great to find a friend and help them out. I've done that. Oh, absolutely. But you also have to be discriminant and know will this person do the job we ask them to do? Will they get up at the end and start throwing egos? Will they become that worst guy on the crew that everybody doesn't want to be around? You want to work with people you like. Yeah. This has nothing to do with that. Absolutely. Work with people you like. But don't hire them just because you like them. Yeah, work because they know they have the, the same interests you have in doing their job. 
And that's something that you have to also ask yourself. You don't need to be ruthless. I don't know how many times in the, over the years I've had to ask, artists ask me, is it better to be ruthless to be successful? It can be. I wouldn't sleep and have not slept well in my, ever in my career when I've been ruthless. And if I've been ruthless, it's because it's to save something, to show someone's career, my own career. But just to be ruthless, to be on top, believe me, it bites you in the ass every time. It catches up with you. You're known by what you do and who you work with. So it's a little dangerous to, to hire your friends. Yeah, no, I mean, obviously, good to hire you, good you hire your friends when they are confident and good at their jobs and, and all of that. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, Leona, you wanted to say something? Yeah, um, as somebody who uh, has moved a lot and has had to make connections both in person and online, a lot of what I think folks don't understand and the struggles they have with pursuing dynamics and then giving up too easily because they do let it break their heart and they are not willing to continue to push forward to overcome these like roadblocks that are, uh, will always happen in comics because unfortunately it doesn't pay well and you know it's there is no path uh, everything's random and there's many opportunities and no opportunities at the same time. But your peers and your community are what like kind of almost fuel you forward and like will be your support system almost in that sense. But it's difficult to manage because not only are you working with them in a professional environment and they're your peers and your coworkers, but then there is that blurred line of the parasocial understanding that you are making friends somewhat or what you think are friends or what you would like to be friends and having to manage both of those and still be successful and still rise other ships to support your community yeah. and not being competitive and not being you know jilted if you didn't get one job or if your friend got a different job or things like that and that is a major part i think of the industry that is not discussed enough yeah. in order to continue to be successful or continue to, to just work in comics right yeah. like it's a i think it's a very major thing because well yeah it's a it's a thing i talk about a lot in terms of i think networking is one of the misunderstood most misunderstood things in the world when i say about you know working with your friends the best networking is making new friends. And maybe somewhere down the line that friend has a gig for you and maybe they do not and that's also cool. Uh, I, did, I told you earlier I, I co-created something with Kevin Eastman. I think one of the reasons he's one of my best friends is I don't know that I mentioned the Ninja Turtles uh, probably for the first year that we knew each other and were hanging out. This wasn't relevant for one thing. For another thing, when I met, he sat, sat down next to me at a bar in Emerald City in uh, Seattle, and we started talking about comics we love. World War II comics from the 1970s was what we bonded over. But I think one of the many things that helped me in that interaction is the idea that I would ever do something with the dude who created the Ninja Turtles professionally was further from my mind than the orbit of Pluto. Like, it could not have been more of an abstract, like, we don't do the same thing, we're not interested. But over time, a couple of years later, he said, you know, there's this thing I've been going with that I think you're a good writer for. And I was like, great. But when you have dollar signs in your eyes, people can see it. You cannot hide it. Make a new friend, meet a fresh face, tell someone you enjoy their work. But if, you, if the major subtext of the conversation is, you, would you look at my art? Do you want to read this script I wrote? No, no one wants to look at your art, no one wants to read your, the script you wrote. They want to have an interaction with you as a human being. If they become interested in you as a human being, they'll ask to see your script. 
they'll ask to look at your, your art. But if you shove it into their hands, they're already going to be in a defensive crouch. I like the oh, really now here in a bar. <laughs> you know, like you're gonna you're gonna hand me your portfolio in a bar, and it, that does happen. I want to give Scott a chance to give us his front door where he found it, what hatch or subterranean uh, passage. So uh, when I was about seven years old, I decided I was going to be in comics. Uh, I've I've met seven year olds since. <laughs> and I would never take career advice from any of them, but um, I took career advice from me at the time. I guess that I was piecing this sort of together. I, my uncle knew a guy who colored comics named Bob Sharon. <clears throat> and Bob Sharon was a colorist for Marvel for, I don't know, 20 years, something like that. But um, his kids, my uncle's kids, were my, my were cousins. And then uh, they loved comics, so I would see some of their comics. So, and then I, I kind of grabbed a couple comics here and there, and then really fell in love with them. But my mom, because her brother had a friend that worked in comics, could sort of see that it was a job. Right. So I was like, I was drawing all the time from when I was like three or four. <clears throat> so I just started drawing comics when I found them. You know what I mean? Like I was drawing off the TV for a long time, I would draw like an ambulance or whatever the things were on the TV. And then I found, you know, Spider-Man, so I started drawing Spider-Man. But then uh, there was a, I was really lucky, there was a school uh, called the Joe Kubert School uh, for cartooning and graphic art. And that opened, it was like a half an hour drive. And they had Saturday classes that Joe would teach. So I would go over there and Joe would teach us these, uh, you know, you'd do a lecture and then you'd sit and draw for a couple hours. And then my parents would just leave me there, honestly, like, I, I was supposed to go at 12, but I would sit there until three. So at any rate, like, I, I was just sitting there and drawing the whole time. And uh, I, I was there until I was about 16. I went to a vocational technical school for graphic design. So I learned all sorts of pay stuff and mechanicals and all these things that get you into uh, early jobs that you can get. <clears throat> I worked at a framing store, uh, same cuts, yeah. and because um, glass really sucks, uh, especially when you're cutting it. And then um, uh, I, I went to school visual arts for uh, for college. While I was there, um, the, well, I had a friend, uh, uh, Phil Jimenez, who went on, he didn't finish the program, he got like two years in, and then uh, Joe Orlando grabbed him and uh, started using him for stuff. And uh, at some point- Another uh, great editor. Yeah, at some point I was like, oh, this will be great. I'll, I'll just get Joe Orlando's, you know, I'll be like, you know, I'll be like, I wanna see, you know. And Joe was like, sure, come by my office. But then I called up his secretary and the secretary was like, no, we don't want you to come here. And I was like, oh, all right. So how Phil got in was completely blocked for me. Like, and then uh, uh, the Hubert School, like <clears throat> Joe was like, this is the toughest job you'll ever have. It's lonely and you're never gonna, you know, out of all these people, what makes you think you're gonna be, you know, the one to get in? Because yeah. honestly, out of the 80 people that were in my cartoon program, Phil got in. One of my friends, Derek, uh, wound up doing animation and then wound up over at Nickelodeon and wound up on SpongeBob. But that's it. The rest of them, I don't know what happened to the other 78, you know, so... They're working at the framing store. Yeah, or the, yeah, I don't know what happened to them. 
honestly. So, so for me, uh, I got out, I did my portfolio, I got it all together, <clears throat> I started showing it around, and then I fell into a deep depression about it. Like I was like, I, I don't see how I can get in, you know? And then I, I had my portfolio all sort of set, but I had like quit a job to try and get my portfolio together, like, cause I was working two jobs, three jobs. Like I was just too, it was too much for me to do the artwork. I was losing track of everything. I was doing like selling video cassette tapes door to door, which was the best job money wise, like you would never believe. But like, um, <clears throat> I got my, I quit, I got my portfolio together. It was terribly depressed. I mean, I'm doing like a page every week at this point, because I can barely get the end of the headspace of it. Like I was having a lot of trouble. And I had a girlfriend who was like, there's this artist that's gonna be at this place. I want you to just bring your portfolio. So she like literally like drives me there, drops me off and is like, get out of the car, go in, you know? And uh, and I go in and, I, and it's John Romita Sr. Who I didn't know that was uh, like an art director at Marvel. So I show him my portfolio. He's like, "Great, can you send me Xeroxes?" I send him Xeroxes, and uh, and then he sends me the back with like notes. He's like, "Change this, 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 and this." And I was like, "I thought, I don't know why, but I was like, I was like, no, this is fine. Like I, what I gave you was fine, you know what I mean?" Like, but he was like, "No, change all this." So I changed everything and sent it back, and then. Uh, and then I, I, I called him a couple times, and then at some point he goes, you know, there's a fine line between being persistent and being a pest, and now you're a pest. And I was like, oh, jeez, you know? And I was like, well, you know, I sent my portfolio to a couple editors there at Marvel and DC, and then I just went back to working a ton of other jobs. And then after about six months, I get a phone call and they're like, we, we have this uh, position open as a raider, which was an art corrections guy. In the, because sometimes Spider-Man's webs are drawn wrong, or you know things would just need to be changed. Uh, so like, they were like, can you do this job? And I was like, that's great. But what I didn't realize is it's, it was like four twenty-five an hour. It was then then they would take out taxes and it was only 35 hours a week. You know, they were like, you take a lunch break. So like, you know, I wasn't getting, like my rent was 675 and I was making 535. So I needed to fill that. And then there was a couple guys who you could do background aches for one guy named Keith Williams who was like a lifesaver. And um, so I wound up doing some background aches I wound up getting some inking jobs when I was there. I wound up being able to get, like once I was in the office, I was just kind of like, you're just talking to people, as many people as you possibly can without being a pest, I guess. But uh, although I did, I do remember, so there's this one guy, he was an inker on Batman number one back in like 1940 something. His name was uh, uh, George Rousseau. And uh, George was an old timer. He was he would uh, color in the comics uh, covers mostly. And uh, one time I came in and I was talking to somebody, and uh, there's a screaming off to my side, and I'm like, what is this one screaming? And then I turn around and it's him, and he's screaming at me. And he goes, "You talk and you talk and you never say anything." And I was like, uh, "Okay." <laughs> like, but being in the office was really helpful because I would drop off an assignment and then they would give me another one or someone would catch me in the middle of the hallway and they'd go like, I gotta have five pages inked overnight, can you do it? And I'd go like, yeah, sure, I can do that. Like, I just wouldn't sleep. 
you know, and I'd work all night long. And when you don't sleep, like, nine in the morning is the hardest part. Like, you can get to five, no problem, but like, getting that last little bit, really difficult. But I would, I was pumping out pages and I was just doing my best and just trying to get everything sort of set and together. But I wanted to be a penciler, I didn't want to just ink. So like, that was a tough transition for me because once they find a job that, that you can do, they're just gonna keep yeah, they won't giving you that job. Do they're like, you do this great. And I'm like, yeah, but I want to do more. So I, I took a job with Stanley Media to, to do some animation. And then like, when I came back, they were just like, here's some more ink jobs. I did my own comic. Uh, I passed that around. I, I sent it to a whole bunch of different publishers. Finally one bit and they were like, they were like, this is great. And I was like, well, you're gonna publish that. And they were like, no, not at all. But they were like, we have another assignment for you. And it was $10 a page, pencils and inks. And I was like, you know what? Like nobody else is giving me pencils jobs. I've got these ink jobs, but like nobody's giving me pencil stuff. I did that. There was a problem in the script. I called up the writer. Cause I was like, I don't understand this part of the script. And he explains it to me. Like, you know, we hang up, like, I finished the assignment, $10 a page, and then like, it gets printed, and then that writer, because I talked to him, was starting to work at Marvel. Now, I've been working at Marvel at that point for 15 years as an anchor, and I couldn't get them interested in my penciling at all, but he's starting to write some stuff over at Marvel, and he's got an editor that I don't normally work with, and he goes, uh, hey, I'd like to have this guy who penciled my issue, to, to work on this assignment. So I started doing stuff there. Now I'm hiding the fact that I'm inking at one part of the company and penciling at another part of the company because uh, literally like my, now I'm really in trouble deadline wise. You know what I mean? Now I'm not sleeping at all. Like just cause I've got to get like all these ink jobs done and all these pencil jobs done and, and penciling and inking the things. So at some point, like uh, I just had to kind of like I was able to make that jump, and I was finally able to do it. I, I had to turn George Perez down, because I was inking over George for like 10 years, and at some point I, I'm like, I just can't, I can't do the inks over George, and uh, I, I've gotta try and focus on me, be my own man. So like, I call up George and I'm like, look, you know, I, I'm, I'm just, a, you know, I'm really kind of nervous, right? Because this is George Perez, like I love his work. Always wanted to do his work, uh, work with him. And I was like, you know, uh, I'm like stumbling over everything. He's like, uh, so they're offering you penciling work. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, uh, well, take it. He's like, uh, go, like, this is your shot. Like, you know, he's like, just do this. Like, you need to do this, go for it. And I was like, oh, okay, right, exactly. So, <laughs> and what was, what was the book? Oh, uh, it was some, oh, it was some Marvel Adventures book. So it was for kids, it was like, uh, um, it was Marvel Adventures, like superheroes or Iron Man or something like that, or X-Men or some, 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 I did a whole bunch of kids, like for five years I did kids stuff, you know what I mean? Cause I'm like, all right, I'm doing, I'm doing kids stuff, you know, like, and then, and then I was able to parlay that because an editor who I was working with on the kids stuff went over to Deadpool and then he called me up and then was like, you want to work on Deadpool? And I was like, no. And then, uh, and then I, I heard a podcast where the writers, and I was like, these guys are great. Right. So I wrote back, I was like, is it too late? And he was like, no. So, and then I did Deadpool for six years. Right. So what so, I love about all of that and how complicated that was. It was. Yeah. No, but that's fine. No, but that's the point of this panel is 
So if you want to draw Deadpool, get a job at a framing store. <laughs> like, it's that complicated. It is that difficult, it is that tricky. And you know, the, the, I've been trying to draw the lesson out. The lesson in that one that I heard, and this is great because this is a really important one, is be professional and be there and help people. And it, you know, there will be times it doesn't pay off. You can choose to be whatever degree of bitter about that that you want to be, or you can just move on to the next thing and move on to the next opportunity. But you will get a reputation as someone who does the work. Show up and do the work. There are people who think, who I think idolize being a freelancer in the professional arts, uh, partially because they go, I have, it's all my own time. It's like, it's your own time until you have a deadline. Then it's not even a little bit your own time and you gotta sit down and do the work. And, uh, but being reliable, being someone whose pages always look great, being someone whose pages always arrive on time, that is the whole enchilada. Uh, and in terms of like taking a job for terrible pay that leads to a great job, it, sometimes it's a bad deal. Sometimes someone is absolutely taking terrible advantage of you. A few years ago, I did a comic in an anthology with an eight page thing that I really wanted to do, dream job. I reached out to a car, uh, an artist named Sylvia Califano I had never met or worked with, but I loved her work and thought she was appropriate. She took this thing, she might have, because it was anthology and split, I don't know if she got $75 for drawing eight pages, and I mean total. But she liked the project, she had some time to do it, and she did it. And since then, I've been able to put her on a five-issue miniseries, a 32-page special, and she's about to start another five-page miniseries for me, all for a perfectly fine professional rate. So she took a chance on me and it paid off really, I paid, paid her rent for 10 months. <laughs> you know, off of the eight, you know, however many days it took her to draw that eight page thing, that was probably not a great week for her. But then I hooked her up with a gig that paid the bills for, like I said, going on 10 months now. So you never know. And you, those are the tricky choices you make. It is, you know, it's the, it's the be your own man thing. It's the, here's the fork in the road. Do I do this thing that's maybe a risk? Or do I, do I take the job working with Neil Adams, which is also a risk? Um, we have to wrap up. It's, we're, we're a minute over time and I don't see the next panel coming in yet. But uh, I'm gonna have everybody say what booth they're at. Because that's the, we're all, every single one of us has a table downstairs. Uh, I am certainly willing to take any questions you have about any of this. Uh, if you stop by, happy to talk to you. I imagine most of these people feel the same way. Chuck, where can they find you? Um, I'm at H04. That sounds right. Scott? Uh, G37. Uh, I'm at uh, 614. And let me just give you one more piece of actionable advice. It's all about proximity. It's about networking. It's about proximity. But find people who are at your level, who are coming up and choose wisely. Yep. Vienna and I have been working, have known each other since like 2017 when she first started getting into comics. And now we collaborate a lot together because she's made good choices and I've made good choices. But we've been friends for a long time before that. So find people who are on the rise, who are at your level, and you network and you help bring each other up together. Yeah.
I was going to mention that too, like you and I have been looking for an excuse to call. Yeah, it hasn't quite worked out yet. Timing is always going to be weird, and uh, but I'm also at 21 and easily found on uh, social media. This will be up as a podcast episode on the writer's block within a couple of weeks probably. Thank you so much for joining us and like I said we will take questions at our booths. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming. If you're watching us on YouTube, be sure to smash that like button. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or other fine purveyors of ear crack, please leave us a five-star review. And wherever you're watching and or listening, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. We'll see you back here next week for more madcap hijinks on The Writer's Block. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.